feel like that's just really a sign of 2020. It's like our hope rests on a ping pong ball that won't get drawn. giant squids and other things that think they're deep i'm Lindsay, and i'm brooke and this week we're talking about the graduate and postgrad just in time for you to be home with your hot neighbor because we're all home oh i was like who's going home yeah when your college campus gets (laughs) shut down for covid and you're forced to go back home you can hook up with your hot neighbor. Although, maybe don't, because COVID. But don't do that. Wait two weeks, get a test, and then hook up with your hot neighbor. Yeah. Okay. But but before we can get <laughs> to those movies, we need to do 127 hours with a film kid. 127 hours with a film kid. So... Emmys. Emmys were last weekend. I feel like most people, like, even if you're not super into the industry, you kind of at least were vaguely aware that they were happening. Or your Twitter was filled with Zendaya, because she's amazing, and this is a Zendaya stan podcast. Oh, 1,000%. if you don't like her, please stop listening. Zendaya, she won. She's the youngest ever to win lead actress in a drama. And only the second black woman to win lead actress in the drama. Yeah. The Emmys, if you didn't watch it, were done all virtual. So the Emmys sent like camera kits to all the nominees so that if they won, they would be able to give their speech. So Zendaya's like room was one of my favorites because just like the entire like family was there and they all were just like, there was a woman that looked like she was about to pass out when Zendaya won. Like it was just like so happy and just like screaming like. I liked the like people, I mean, except for like the occasional times where there were delays and the fact that Jimmy Kimmel got probably an hour uninterrupted of COVID jokes. I liked COVID the jokes. Zoom groupings. Like, you don't have to wait for people to walk up the stage. Like, they seem more comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Just, like, chilling at their tables with, like, either the rest of their crew, like, their yeah, cast and, like, and crew Yeah, like, people were doing it in different ways. Like, Shit's Creek, they rented a fucking tent in Toronto. There were so many things that, like, if you take out of context and, like, somehow manage to send images from this Emmys back to, like, 2018, and, like... <laughs> That, like, wouldn't make sense of, like, the Schitt's Creek tent, everyone in masks. I don't know who was dressed up on the bed on the roof drinking <laughs> wine, but I loved her. <laughs> One of my favorite things, though, that I saw on the internet was, I think it was the New York Post put out a tweet being, like, biggest Emmys upset, Zendaya wins. And the internet just collectively forgot what upset meant. And they're like, who's mad that Zendaya won? I saw won? so many tweets That's that was racist. like, I'm not upset. <laughs> No one's upset that she won, but it was an upset. Yeah. <laughs> We're all quite happy. The other thing that I found hilarious was the method of distributing the Emmys. Essentially, they sent like people in these like hazmat suits to all the nominees that would then hand them the Emmy if they won. Then if they didn't win, the person would still be there. Like, like it's not like the Emmys like knew who was winning in advance. I thought Rami did that as a joke. No. Like, I thought that he bought a hazmat suit and had his friend stand outside sarcastically No, yeah, so it. Rami <laughs> tweeted out a video after he lost the Emmy of the person, like, waving outside the window in, in a hazmat suit being like, hi. <laughs> but no, because you can see it on the Shit's Creek tent at one point the hazmat suit enters to hand an emmy like they like had this whole system to keep it covid free and it just is so fucking weird (laughs) 
But yeah, that was the Emmys. Next up, it's fucking David Lynch. You know I'm obsessed with him <laughs> and what he's doing online. So first, just an update to the weather reports because everyone needs these. He's added something to them. He now wears sunglasses Ooh. every day because the future is so bright. Uh, hmm. That's a take. <laughs> <laughs> But also, more importantly, the painted jar has a purpose. For those who didn't listen to that episode, he introduced in one episode this jar that was like half painted and black. I was like, I bet you're wondering what this jar is for. That will be revealed soon and then just left it at that. Well, it now has a purpose, except it really doesn't. It's a weird purpose. The purpose of this jar is he has put 10 ping pong balls in this jar, all numbered from one through 10. And then each day he swirls the balls and pulls one out. And that is today's number. Okay, what what are you confused about? What does that mean? That's that day's number. For reference, so today is (laughs) the 21st of September. Is today a five? Today is not a a five. Today is a four. You're close. Oh my god, I was close. Damn, okay. (laughs) But, so he's been doing this for a little over a month. He's been doing, today was day 37. And there are people in the comments have gotten way too invested in this. There is one person named Wes, who all he wants in life is for today's number to be a seven. In 37 (laughs) days, seven has not been yet pulled. Oh my god, what are like the statistics of that? Math people. I'm math people, technically. <laughs> Someone else has the statistics. Today is day 37. It's been over four weeks without a two and over five weeks without a seven. The chances wow. of one or more numbers being unpicked for at least as long as seven has are actually 19.1%. Doesn't seem that low, but it feels really weird. Yeah. This one person gives the stats each day and like has the sequence of numbers. The most picked right now is a tie between eight and nine. Both have been picked nine times. I wish I could be this invested in David Lynch. Like, I understand that I could be, but, like, I wish I wanted to be this invested in I wish I wanted to be this invested in getting a number seven pulled. Like, this person, like... This, yeah, this commenter named Wes, like, he literally will comment every day being like, if it's not a fucking seven, I'm losing my mind. Oh my god, Wes, you've lost it. (laughs) Already. (laughs) It's just a weird thing to be so invested in, to be like, all my happiness rides on a single ping pong ball, but like, hey man, it's quarantine, (laughs) you gotta do what you gotta do. I mean, like, a lot of our sanity is beyond a ping pong ball, so like, if you could keep it. Yeah, that's fair. But like, the thing is, is the ping pong ball hasn't been pulled yet, so like, I feel like that's just really a sign of 2020. It's like our hope rests on a ping pong ball that won't get drawn. And the ping pong ball is going to explode in that jar. (laughs) So we're just going to do a quick roundup of lawsuits and lawsuit updates this week. I love lawsuits. So two intellectual theft cases have come out recently. There's so many in Hollywood, but they're Mm. like 99 out of 100 go nowhere because it's really hard to say like you can't prove that you came up with the con- like that's why like friends with benefits and no strings attached like they didn't sue each other you know like it's the same <laughs> essential plot at the same time none of our shows on this podcast sued each other <laughs> yeah that's very true but like as yet as of yet, yet. <laughs> i feel like we should do an episode where they sue each other for- <laughs> okay so first uh was Melissa mccarthy warner brothers and more 
are getting sued over the life of the party. So for those who don't know what that is, Life of the Party was a 2018 movie where Melissa McCarthy plays this mom who basically follows her daughter to college. Like she also attends college oh, with her daughter. I for this. Yeah. Don't we? Was that like a good movie? It was like a Melissa McCarthy movie. I feel like it like wasn't bridesmaids level funny, but like like it won like a People's <laughs> Choice Award. Okay. The plaintiff is saying they pitched this movie to Gersh, which is an agency, in 2015 with a treatment and is claiming that the collection of Hollywood heavyweights had a quote-unquote secret agreement to rip off the whole thing from her WGA registered treatment and script called College Mom. I love the idea that she thinks there's this huge conspiracy to steal this C-level comedy. Like, who wants to steal College Mom? Like, <laughs> it's not like, I don't know, it's not like this huge movie that, like, became, like, such the oh, this is the funniest thing we've seen in years. Like, it was... That's more like why I asked. I was like, is the suing wor worth, like, your B-level movie? <laughs> yeah, is she's suing for, like, $10 million or something insane. Wow almost guaranteed this is gonna go nowhere because again it's pretty hard to prove you had an idea that's uniquely yours that no one else could have thought of like anyway the second thing is gary oldman and nbc universal Aww. and more are getting sued oh no. over the oscar winning film the darkest hour which was that 2017 movie about winston churchill and gary oldman won for his portrayal of Churchill. So a History Channel writer is suing for allegedly ripping off parts of his script. The writer says Gary Oldman and Moore had access to at least three drafts of his Churchill project and that very specific parts of have been stolen from his project. But interestingly, Anthony McCartan, who wrote The Darkest Hour, is not being sued. <laughs> How is it just Gary Oldman and NBC then? Is it for like speaking the lines? Like I just read the Deadline article about it where the History Channel writer says that he had a quote unquote agreement that Gary Oldman was going to star in his project, but there's Ooh. been like no like real proof of that. This is just a ploy to get Gary Oldman in his project. <laughs> So who knows if either of those lawsuits will go anywhere. That is what the phone kids are talking about. And that's what you need to know to get through a conversation without feeling like you have to cut off your arm to escape. So The Graduate. Before we get started, we need to address the sexual assault of it all. In today's viewing, this movie is about sexual assault slash harassment of Ben by Mrs. Robinson and then his subsequent harassment and stalking of Elaine. I don't think I had seen it before. I think it was on in like the common room in college, but like I was doing other things at the time. And I like don't remember people specifically being like, it's very problematic. In which case, when I saw it, I was genuinely shocked. Sorry. And, like, I've heard things about this movie, but, like, never those things. So I was like, are people just looking past this? Did people not think this is, like, 
Assault. So I'm not condoning this movie, but 50 years ago when this movie was released, these types of actions were not seen as sexual assault. The art of seduction was paramount, meaning anyone who said no was seen as just not being persuaded to say yes yet. In addition, the 1960s view of sex did not allow for men to be seen as victims, which obviously is bullshit. It was bullshit then, it's bullshit now. But to condemn this movie would also be to condemn an entire era. And I think what this movie accomplished Publishes, to ignore that is wrong as well. That being said, Dustin Hoffman has also come up in several allegations during the Me Too movement. Several women have come forward oh, saying that. that he's either groped, revealed himself, demanded sexual acts at various points over various decades from the 70s to the 90s. Specifically on the set of The Graduate, Hoffman pinched Catherine Ross, who plays Elaine, on her left buttocks in order to loosen her up. Also, the moment where Ben places his hand on Mrs. Robinson boob was completely unscripted. The director, Mike Nichols, asked Hoffman to to feel her up during that sequence, and they both kept this secret from Anne Bancroft, who plays Ew. Mrs. Robinson. In today's filmmaking, that thankfully would not happen. There are now intimacy coordinator positions on set who ensure the well-being of actors and sex or other intimate scenes. So by talking about this film, we are not condoning that, nor are we siding with Dustin Hoffman. We will always believe people coming forward about their abuser, and if you want to skip The Graduate, we will put the timestamp in our show note. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for my tweet, I kind of cheated and I used phone a friend. For context, Lindsay and I have a friend from college who is obsessed with this movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> to the point where we jokingly created a drinking game about watching this movie with him. And whenever he would say certain things, we would take a drink. So I reached out to him and asked him in 50 words or less, why do you like this movie? And so my tweet is just his response. <laughs> Here it is. It is, by the way, this isn't really sentence. These are just thoughts. <laughs> it's long lens cinematography, strong color and motif scenes, revolutionary editing, Simon and Garfunkel, Elaine, generation gap defining, about the hippies without ever showing a hippie, and MILF. Again, not my words. All right, Benson. <laughs> Mine is, neighborhood mom teaches an L.A. virgin how to have sex so her daughter's sex life can be dot 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 slightly less awkward. <laughs> so as I mentioned, this film is directed by Mike Nichols, starring Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft. It was released in 1967. It was nominated for seven Oscars. It won for Best Director. It was placed on number seven on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies list in 98, and then in 2007 when they revised this list. It was moved to number 17, but was still on there. It is in the U.S. National Film Registry for preservation for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I like the idea of something being aesthetically significant. <laughs> like, I want to be aesthetically significant. You are aesthetically <laughs> like, significant. here we are. <laughs> Thanks. So... We open on a close-up of Ben, and it pulls out to reveal that he's on a plane, and then he lands... In a suit? Yeah. I will add. The 60s are wild. People used to dress up to get on planes. They also used to sell Yo, life insurance in vending, in vending machines, like, before you got on a plane. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Wild times. <laughs> so yeah, he's on the plane, he lands in LA, and then 
there's a really, really long take of him standing on this moving walkway as the sound of silence plays. Which like also, I understand that this is probably like one of the first movies that did that, but I feel like when movies play that song, it's like as a joke. I mean, they're all <laughs> Which, referencing like, this. Which like probably started it. But it's like <laughs> three times. It's three times. Granted, I like the soundtrack of it. Okay, at the time, it was very unusual to use existing songs in a film soundtrack. The fact that oh, Sound of Silence was an existing song was it was extremely rare. And because this movie was so successful, this movie kind of changed that. Now movies use existing songs because of this. Originally, The Sound of Silence was used as an editing placeholder, just so the editor could edit to the right <laughs> feel during those sequences. But Nichols liked the song. I'd like to not think it was about the beat, and it was just Hello Darkness, My Old Friend wasn't <laughs> indicative of Ben. I mean, yeah, it is. But yeah, Nichols liked the song so much, they ended up keeping it. Simon and Garfunkel were originally hired to write three new songs for this movie, but... Simon just kept maintaining they didn't have enough time. Mrs. Robinson is one of the few like original songs for this movie, but it originally wasn't Mrs. Robinson. It was just a song that Simon was writing called Mrs. Roosevelt that they changed to be Mrs. Robinson for the movie. <laughs> Who was Mrs. Roosevelt? Like, the first lady? Oh. Did they know her? <laughs> no, it was just like about like the era. Oh, okay. <laughs> They know that her. makes sense. They could have just changed the whole movie and have them have been the Roosevelts, but... That would have been weird. Would it have? Yes. It's a common last name. You can't make a movie in the 60s about a family named the Roosevelts and not have it be referential. So yeah, Ben is on this moving walkway, and the shot... You can read into it a lot. I will not be discussing all of the metaphors and all the different ways you can read all the shots because we will be here literally all day. The cinematographer Robert Surtees has been quoted as saying, I needed everything I learned in the previous 30 years to shoot The Graduate. The cinematography, the editing, like that stuff is why I like it. I do not like it for the plot. Well, I dislike it for the plot. <laughs> <laughs> but to give you an idea, I'm going to break down this first shot of him on the moving wall walkway and then you can kind of extrapolate to see how much intention every single shot has in this movie. So Ben is standing on this moving walkway and it's moving from the right side of the screen to the left. Because we read left to right, anything that moves in that direction feels natural and kind of like a progression to our eyes. So him moving from the opposite direction shows his lack of progression. Further, he isn't doing the actual moving. He is standing on a thing that's moving him. This again, metaphor for his life. He hasn't actually had control of anything. He's gone through education and is just now at a point where he can make a choice. And instead, what he does in the movie is the lack of choice. He doesn't actually choose anything. He just drifts for most of the movie. Doesn't seem like he wants to do anything either. Yeah. Like, I don't even know what he went to school for. Exactly. A lot of this movie is about him trying to get control of his life. Further, other people are walking past him and he kind of looks at them almost longingly so he can see what he wants but just isn't sure how he's gonna get there. And finally, the music of this shot. So Sound of Silence becomes the theme of this movie whenever Ben is lost and aimless. We hear it now. We hear it in the pool in that like montage moment and finally at the end. Like I said, this is a very basic shot but it conveys a lot and I will not be doing this with every shot because <laughs> again, we don't have six hours for this podcast. <laughs> 
So he goes home and then we see him sitting in his bedroom. The fish tank is behind him. There's a little scuba man in it. His dad comes in and stands between Ben and the camera and he says, there's guests here to see him, but Ben just wants to be alone and he's worried about his future. His mom comes in and fully blocks the shot. Again, metaphorically, his parents are overbearing and he doesn't take up any space. His parents do that for him. So the next sequence where he's downstairs in this party is really well done. He's overwhelmed by his parents' friends and you can feel this frenzied, claustrophobic nature in this sequence. There's constant new characters being introduced, hands are being put on him, He every time you turn or there's a cut, it's just really well edited and shot. After Mr. McGuire tells him about the plastics and the future of plastics, he runs up to his room where he looks down on the party from the window. Important to note, Nichols uses glass and water a lot in this movie, and it almost always is to convey Ben's emotional state. So here, the glass of the window is kind of used to say that he's cut off from this world of his parents. He isn't a part of it, but he can still see it. He's distant, but he's not removed. Yeah, I also get why he didn't want to go to the fucking party if every single adult there is talking about how he can quote-unquote get underaged women, destroy the environment, and then read things about him from his college yearbook out loud, which I didn't even know colleges had. <laughs> So then Mrs. Robinson comes into Ben's room and Ben says, I'm just sort of disturbed about things because sure. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson asks Ben to drive her home. Ben doesn't want to. He says that she can just take the car, but she doesn't know how to drive it. So she tosses the keys back to him and they land in the fish tank. Uh, she threw them in the fish tank on purpose. And if someone did that to me, I'd be like, bitch, you don't get a ride home now. Be <laughs> over. Like, that's it. It's done. So Ben drives her home. Mrs. Robinson asks him to come in because she doesn't feel safe until she gets the lights on. Then she invites him in and pours him a drink. She tells him to stay until her husband comes home and she asks him what he thinks of her and admits that she's an alcoholic. And then we get the famous quote, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me, aren't you? Which is shot from under Mrs. Robinson's leg, <laughs> but the focus is pulled on Ben. Mrs. Robinson denies wanting to seduce him and shows him Elaine's portrait, which like if my parents won got a portrait of me and then hung it in my own bedroom. <laughs> or just did anything, like try to like assault people my age in my own room. Yeah, that's fair. But here we are. Ben just continuously wants to leave. He actually goes to leave, but Mrs. Robinson asks Ben to bring up her purse and he does. And then Mrs. Robinson is naked and shuts the door. So they use what is known as a stutter cut for Ben turning around, which is just where we see that action repeat. So much of the editing and cinematography of this movie is just to kind of give the audience an insight into what Ben is thinking and his emotional state. So as this conversation continues with Mrs. Robinson and Ben, you see those very, very brief flashes of nudity. Like you see like her boob and like you see like different parts or and it's kind of that's how Ben is feeling. He's trying not to look, but he can't help from looking because he's a man and that's what they do. Uh, fucking hate the 60s. <laughs> so then Mr. Robinson comes home, seemingly from golfing. Like he has a golf bag with him, which is weird because it's late at night. It's like, where was Mr. Robinson really? But okay. And then Ben runs very speedily through the house. And then if you look at the shot right before Mr. Robinson comes in, like the focus of the shot is on the drink on the bar. And again, that's just Mimicking Ben's desire to have an excuse to be there, like 
he's just like looking for a vice, looking for a way out. And then Mr. Robinson comes in and has a nightcap with Ben. He tells Ben that he should be taking things easier and go sow some wild oats. And then tells him to call his daughter. Why? Why? Like, why are, why is everyone in this movie so obsessed with like, I don't know, being like, Ben, you need to like fuck around before you could do anything. Fuck around with my daughter. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm so uncomfortable this entire time. <laughs> so then we have the party at Ben's house for his 21st birthday and Ben's dad is trying to get him to come out but Ben doesn't want to come out and then he eventually does come out in the scuba suit. Breathing so uncomfortably for so long. <laughs> ben is just on display for his parents and then we go from the shot inside the scuba mask where you can't hear anything again through the glass of the scuba mask. So again showing that he is disconnected from his parents world kind of emphasizing that gap that they have. So you can't hear anything in that shot besides Ben's breathing and then everyone's cheering. Ben goes underwater. He tries to come up and his dad's hand comes into the frame and pushes him back down. Then the next shot is just a really well done shot of Ben kind of deep under the pool that clearly isn't that deep but He's deep under the pool, and it's kind of a lot of empty space, that water. And then while he's underwater, we hear the beginning of the phone call between him and Mrs. Robinson, where he's inviting her to come to the hotel. And still looks fucking scared and terrified. Yeah. Mrs. Robinson says she'll be there in an hour. And so as he walks up to the door of the hotel, a bunch of old people are coming out and he holds the door open for a bunch of young people to come in. Then he goes to the bar area and Mrs. Robinson arrives and we see it from a shot of the reflection of the table. If you don't see them, we see just the reflection. Ben can't get the waiter's attention, but Mrs. Robinson can get it very quickly. She then asks him if he's gotten a room yet so he approaches the desk he signs the register then immediately removes that entry to sign in as mr gladstone <laughs> and he continues to be an anxious mess he forgets to tell mrs robinson the room number he's very anxious about the check-in clerk knowing what's happening which is all just like mm. red flags that it shouldn't be happening but okay I will also say I did make a note about the cinematography here in which I called them creepy shots <laughs> because a lot of them are looking from behind things. Yep. And then I said, why is Ben watching people so closely? Why is he watching them from behind walls? Why is he watching them so intently? Why are we watching you from like underneath? <laughs> so he goes up to the hotel room, he turns the lights on, then immediately turns them off and only leaves on the bathroom light and then opens the door a little bit to let the light in. He then shuts all the blinds and Mrs. Robinson knocks on the door, comes in, immediately turns the, on the lights, but Ben turns them off. She starts to get undressed. Ben just places his hand on her breast and then immediately goes and slams his head against the wall. Again, signs that you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, my only note was, I'm so uncomfortable, I can't watch this. Yeah, so he tells Mrs. Robinson that he can't go through with this, and she kind of reverse psychology manipulates him, and she calls him inadequate. So he slams the door to the bathroom shut, putting them into total darkness, and they have sex. So then the sound of silence plays again, and this next sequence is incredibly well edited and kind of revolutionary for this time. So it's Ben drifting through this period of his life is mimicked in the match cuts where he goes from the pool to the hotel room almost seamlessly. Like he's 
in the pool and he jumps up onto Floaty, but it's like him jumping up onto Mrs. Robinson or he's putting on a shirt and like leaving the pool, but now he's in the hotel room. Like it's just the way that that is so seamless is very well done. This montage ends and with Ben in the pool and his dad kind of standing over him and Ben's just saying, I'm j I would just say that I'm drifting here in the pool. The Robinsons come over and you kind of get the shot of them standing over Ben again, emphasizing this generational gap and for emphasizing like the previous generation's just overbearingness on the Ben generation. Which like I get, but like if Ben's fucking like the representation of the young generation, like ugh, ugh. <laughs> yeah, and Mr. Robinson again wants Ben to call Elaine. Then he's in the bathroom shaving and Ben's mom comes in and tries to get him to say where he goes at night. And we get this close up of the razor on Ben's neck. Ben's also like, I don't meet anyone. Why would you even say that? <laughs> As if he's not gone till noon the next day. Like, does he not have friends that he can even pretend that he's seeing? Nope. Like, he's just kind of like, no, I'm not. He's just like, I'm, like, I'm just <laughs> driving around. All I do is drive. All I do is drive for 12 hours straight. Every night. night. <laughs> I'm just patrolling. Then at the hotel, Mrs. Robinson and Ben have a conversation. They talk about Mr. Robinson and Ben learns she only married him because she was pregnant with Elaine. Ben also asks why they don't talk and the answer is because his voice is fucking infuriating. <laughs> and then he's like, you talking about my college life is too invasive. Let's talk about your husband. Yep. This is where I switch to hating Ben. <laughs> So Mrs. Robinson tells Ben that he can't ask her daughter on a date. And he says, well, I had no intention of doing that. Like, why would you even talk about that? And then kind of switches and goes, well, why can't I? Like, why won't, can I even talk about her? And kind of comes to the realization that she thinks that he isn't good enough for her daughter. And they get into this argument and Ben like gets stressed and says a lot of hurtful things to Mrs. Robinson. And then they kind of turns and ultimately Ben doesn't leave. And also is like, because you had sex with her mom, not an answer. Obviously not, Lindsay. Have you seen the rest of this movie? <laughs> is that not even slightly valid? Nope. So Ben's dad tells Ben that he needs to ask Elaine out. And then his parents nag him while swimming literal circles around him in the pool. Ben's mom then says, well, she'll just invite them all over on Thursday night. And so Ben decides to take her out to avoid that because that would be terrible. So when he gets over- And also, why was he like- the thought never occurred to me to take out Elaine. Like, every single character is like, why don't you go out with Elaine? Obviously, it would come up. I feel like Ben is gaslighting me specifically. <laughs> that's Well, like, in his mind, it hasn't all. come up because he's literally fucking her mom. He's just like, no, I would never consider doing that because it would be weird. And also, like, take Elaine out of the situation. If I were sleeping with someone... And that person was like, hey, do you think I should date these other people? Even if we weren't dating, that, like, isn't a conversation that I want to have with you. Yep, I agree. Fully and agree. And it's especially not a conversation if it's about my daughter. Yeah. Ben decides he's going to be as much of a dick as possible. So he takes Elaine to a strip club. While wearing sunglasses inside. At night. <laughs> at night. <laughs> when the stripper shakes her tassel tits above Elaine and Elaine starts to cry. Ben realizes that he's been a complete dick. He tries to apologize. She just wants to go home. And then he kisses he her just says, to make her stop crying. crying. 
Yeah. <laughs> Asshole. So then they go to a drive-in and talk. And again, we get a shot through the glass where we can't hear them. But now Ben's not alone. He has Elaine. So then he drives her home. Elaine invites him in. And obviously he can't do that. So he suggests they just go somewhere else. He drives off. But then when she suggests they go to the hotel, he nearly wrecks the car. So they go to the hotel and everyone there addresses him as Mr. Gladstone. Elaine figures out that he's been having an affair with someone and she just asks, is it over? And Ben says yes. Then instead of a good night kiss, Ben tosses a bag of fries her way. And that is the only thing that I like that he does in this movie. (laughs) Just like... Toss me fries when you end a date, please. Regardless of if we have fries on the date, just keep a bag of fries for me. For no, it needs to be a fresh bag of fries because, like, old fries will not be good. Yes, like, buy fries. Yeah, like, on the way home. At some point during yeah. the date, but the fries don't need to be part of the date. Exactly. The next day, he pulls up to the Robinson, and instead of Elaine getting in, Mrs. Robinson gets in the car. She tells Ben that she's going to tell Elaine everything. He says he doesn't believe her, and he she kind of goes, try me. So he runs to Elaine. And also, why wouldn't you believe her? What part of any of this situation would make you think that she would not do that? Self-preservation. Because, like, by telling Elaine, she does, like, ruin her marriage and her life. There isn't much there to save. (laughs) He runs to Elaine in the rain. And so he's soaked and he gets to her and he tells Elaine about Mrs. Robinson. And we see Mrs. Robinson's face in the doorway. And then the shot pulls focus from Mrs. Robinson to Elaine, who's, like, starting to get tears in her eyes. So Elaine throws him out. And he again tells her to stop crying. Like, just just. He doesn't say stop crying. He says don't cry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> ben doesn't have emotions. He's shut off from his own emotions in this movie. He's not used to processing emotions. <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. So in the next shot, it's Mrs. Robinson outside of Elaine's room. And Ben's kind of in the corner of the shot. And then the shot pulls back to show the actual distance between Mrs. Robinson and Ben. And then this movie turns into Twilight because Ben stalks Elaine. <laughs> when you're describing these shots, I understand. My view is just, it's Ben being fucking creepy. You went on one date. Yeah. He then tells his parents that he's gonna marry Elaine. And, like, they're so excited. And then he reveals (laughs) Elaine doesn't know about it. In fact, she doesn't even like him right now. (laughs) Nope. 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 So he drives up to Berkeley and he sees Elaine, but he doesn't approach. He kind of runs away and he ends up stalking her some more. She eventually gets on a bus and he runs after it and runs very, very fast. This man should run track. (laughs) He does run track. He, they said that he at the did, party. yeah. That's fair. <laughs> I really miss. <laughs> so he gets on the bus. Elaine doesn't want to talk to him, and she uses the. He class- pretends it's a coincidence. He's like, "What are you doing on this bus <laughs> yeah. that I ran after?" And she uses the classic "I'm meeting someone" line, but he doesn't get the hint and goes, "Oh, cool. I'll, I'll go to the zoo as well." And she's meeting Carl. So Elaine then goes to his room where he's staying and confronts him for raping her mom, which is the story that Mrs. Robinson has told Elaine. Ben tells her the truth and she screams bloody murder, which obviously gets the landlord and like every other man in the building to come. But Elaine's fine. She's drinking water. Like, it's not problematic. Good things happen to your look. She's fine. Then Elaine goes to leave, but tells Ben she doesn't want him to leave until he has a definite plan. So Elaine comes back and asks Ben to kiss her. 
Then he asks her to marry him and she says, well, I might. And then he says they should maybe get married the next day. So the next day, Ben continues to ask and nag her about getting married. And Elaine finally says that she needs to talk to Carl because she agreed to maybe marry him. Even though theoretically they've only been on one date. Like that's the thing is both Carl and Ben, we only know one date. Ben returns back to his room and Mr. Robinson is there who obviously hates Ben and tells him that he and Mrs. Robinson are getting a divorce. Ben doesn't understand why they would need to get a divorce and says the point is I don't love your wife. I love your daughter, sir. Don't worry that I slept with your wife. She ain't shit. How do you think <laughs> that was gonna go, Ben? <laughs> like, it was like, yeah, I previously fucked your wife. Now I want to fuck your daughter. What's what's the problem? <laughs> Ben goes to Elaine, but she has left Berkeley and has left him a note saying that she loves him, but it would never work out. Ben then drives all the way back to LA. He goes to the Robinsons' house and breaks in. He goes to Elaine's room and Mrs. Robinson is there. Mrs. Robinson calls the cops and apologizes to Ben for not inviting him to Elaine's wedding. I added my, is this cop propaganda? (laughs) Is it? And I said that it was pro-cop propaganda because they're advocating just willy-nilly calling the cops for any quality of life complaint, which cops shouldn't have to handle. But also I hate them and I'm fine (laughs) with them calling the cops on him because I hate him and he (laughs) deserves it. So I'm not going to advocate either way. (laughs) Actually, they should, she should also be in jail because she assaulted him. But here we are. Everyone in this movie should be in jail. So I'm not going to (laughs) comment. So then Ben drives all the way back to Berkeley and he talks to Carl's friends and learns that he's getting married somewhere in Santa Barbara. He drives to Santa Barbara and then finds a phone book and somehow manages to call Carl's dad's medical office, which the fact that there's only one Dr. Smith in all of Santa Barbara feels very strange to me, but okay. So he learns from the receptionist the wedding is more than likely over and he claims to be the reverend and says that he just forgot where the church is and she tells him it's on Allen Street. So on his way there, his car runs out of gas and he runs the rest of the way on foot. Man, his track practice really comes in he's handy. he's a fast runner. Yeah. <laughs> That's what track was for. He gets to the church. The front doors are locked, so he runs up to the balcony and he sees them kiss, meaning he's too late. And so he starts banging <clears throat> on the glass. Again, the glass. Screaming Elaine. I hated this. <laughs> I had secondhand embarrassment this entire time. <laughs> So then Elaine sees him and like starts walking towards him. And then we get the shot from Elaine's perspective where she can't hear anything that people around her are saying, but they just look very angry. So she attempts to run to Ben. Ben and Mr. Robinson fight. He comes down and goes into the church meaning he leaves behind the glass. So then he uses a crucifix as a weapon (laughs) and then uses it to barricade the doors so everyone is trapped inside of the church. I did enjoy that. That was my single moment of joy. (laughs) He and Elaine run off together. They get on the bus and drive off. Everyone is staring at him. They sit down and then they're smiling. They're happy. And then they start to look uncertain and the sound of silence plays. My ending quote was, yeah, what now you fucking freaks? Look at each other on the bus be concerned. Yeah. The ending of the movie is kind of, they're kind of back at the beginning where Ben no longer knows what he wants to do next, like how to get there. He's kind of uncertain and lost and aimless and just because he has Elaine by his side doesn't mean everything's gonna be magically fixed. That is The Graduate. Woo. I take back my woo. Not a woo. <laughs> I'm upset. Yeah. 
in another story of recent college grads thinking that they're in love because they are bored and or misguided. We have post-grad. <laughs> My tweet is misinterpreting the advice of a cinematographer. A recent college grad quits her dream job to move in with a classmate who guilted her into a date. My tweet is, it's okay to give up your dream job for absolutely no reason at all. I mean, for love. <laughs> she doesn't love him. <laughs> See, this whole time I was like, Adam is creepy and whiny. But then I was like, just kidding. Ben's worse. <laughs> so then I had to edit my notes. <laughs> Yeah, like Adam isn't great, but at least he doesn't stop anybody. That's fair. He's just a little whiny and he's doesn't just like, understand that women can be your friends. Yeah, he's a nice guy who like <laughs> believes in the friend zone, which like I hate the friend zone as a concept. I know. Like, I'm sorry you tried to kiss your friend and they said, hey, please don't do that. And then you sung about it at a department store. Yeah. I digress. It starts out classic 2009 with Rory from Gilmore Girls. She, who basically who plays Rory. Like, the characters are very similar. Girls. Minus, instead of being obsessed about journalism, she's obsessed with publishing. But, like, I love Gilmore Girls, but Rory is a very self-centered character who, like, won't acknowledge anyone else's feelings and, like, only puts herself first and... So is Raiden. <laughs> but Raiden is doing a vlog, so 2009, yeah. about her college experience. On her MySpace page. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Well, it's like not MySpace, but it's clearly meant to be MySpace. Like all it has like her MySpace. like friends page and like, oh my God, doing like all the code. I was like a middle school. I never had a MySpace, but like my very brief knowledge of coding comes from like updating my Tumblr page. My, yeah, my coding knowledge came from MySpace because like, it was so detailed. Like I had so many like things to it and like understanding code all came from MySpace. And like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I never deactivated my MySpace. I'm hoping MySpace did it on its own because I think they did because I don't even have access to the email that I signed up with. <laughs> Because it was, like, an AOL account. Oh, my God, my AOL email. Yeah, so when my parents set this all up on, like, my parents still, to this day, share an AOL email account. They were still paying oh. for AOL oh. until, like, 2010 or something insane. Because they didn't, they thought if they stopped paying, their emails would just go away. But that's the email I used to sign up for MySpace. So I don't have access to that email. I don't have access to my MySpace. And I know it's so cringy because it was, like, seventh grade me. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's probably a blessing that I never made a MySpace. Yeah, Because I know it would still exist out there. And then someone one day would find it. <laughs> like, I, I'm just hoping that MySpace has deleted it. That's all I'm hoping. <laughs> But her blog is about her graduating from college with the goal of getting a job at an L.A. publishing house. Bryden's family shows up to the graduation in the middle of the valid Victorian speech, and her grandmother starts eating Cheetos very loudly, much to the dismay of the crowd, which is also like, have any of you been to a graduation before? People just, like, scream in the middle of them yeah. announcing stuff all the time. Cheetos don't fucking matter. Bryden's friend, the presumptive love interest, Adam, eat dinner with her family because his dad, quote, is too busy to come and his mom is dead end quote yep. which they're just getting right into the background of these characters I know, this in movie, the most blunt way they possibly this can this movie really <laughs> made me think of like a comment on a facebook post about people being like readers in development like what do you hate the most someone was like <laughs> if someone says the name of the character six times in three sentences okay i get it you want me to know who this person is but like 
you don't naturally say someone's name that time. And, like, she says Adam, like, six times. She's like, Adam, why are you shrugging? Okay, again with the shrug, Adam. Like, Adam, I get it. I was like, okay, I get it. His name is Adam. One of my friends, her brother, they always used to call him BJ, and then she found out what blowjobs were, and then she refused to call him BJ, so she just started calling him brother. So, like... She was on the phone with her mom the other day and she was like, oh, like his brother coming. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the real life situation of someone just being like, ah, sister does this in like movies when people yeah. were like, cause I think it was like from the same thread. And it's like when people refer to their siblings like as like that yeah. in ways that they wouldn't. And I'm like, nope, this person is the sole example of that. <laughs> yeah. Or like. It's the Sabrina reboot where he just exclusively calls Sabrina cousin and cuz. Oh, He's I just like, that. hey, cuz. I'm like, no, no, nobody does that. Who are Stop. you? Bryden is telling her family that she already has an interview at Prospective Publishing Company, to which she just says that she'll take an apartment in LA that she absolutely cannot afford as a new LA college grad without a job, presumably by herself. But on her way to the interview, a truck, a giant truck T-bones their car and then drives away. And upon no other consequences, Bryden just runs to her interview anyway. I have so many things to say. One, like, my notes, I was taking notes during the scene where she's looking at that apartment and literally goes, I'm just trying to imagine how extensive a place like that would cost. And then, oh, wait, like, did a man... It's a one-bedroom? It's a one 3000 <laughs> No, that, that 3500 is first, last, and security deposit, like, combined. No, no. Not even in 2009. That's what I was like. <laughs> that is a downtown apartment. Looks amazing. And then I was like, wait, did that man just say that check for first, last, plus security deposit is 3500 I was like, that's barely more than 1000 a month. No way. No way. I refuse. <laughs> and then my next note is... Getting into a wreck like that is kind of realistic for LA. I will say, since moving to DC, I know more people that have been hit by cars than, like, literally any other time in my entire like life. Like, pedestrians? Either pedestrians or on bikes. Oh my god. <laughs> Next scene, she's at the interview, which they are running two hours behind for, and all of the applicants are literally in one room. Like, no workplace is that efficient, and also has all of the first interviews in person, but like, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I've been in interviews where there's been like five of us in but the lobby. <laughs> 30 and running two hours behind. Yeah, I think it's, I, it's weirdly, that reminds me of like a casting call. Like, that's what a casting call yeah. looks like, where like they're running two hours behind, everyone's there in the room, like you feel uncomfortable, you feel like you're trying to measure yourself. I was like, this is really weird. Like, I wonder if the writer... <laughs> has a background in casting. <laughs> and not assistance for publishing houses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ryden says that she deserves to get the job because she is a fuckboy who loves Catcher in the Rye and Bukowski <laughs> more than hanging out with her friends. It's very fair. Upon not getting the job, she tells the landlord, who obviously rejects her for lying about having a job, that she can get one because, quote, she is a college grad, which, one, ha, two, at least she's trying, Ben. <laughs> Next scene, Ryden and Adam wallow in their sorrows at the grocery store to a series of uncomfortable events. 
First off, Raiden tries Adam's favorite ice cream, which is just a Klondike bar, but they call it something weird throughout this entire movie. This Klondike bar is the Sound of Silence equivalent of this movie. But when Raiden's like, it's good, Adam's like, that's not good enough. So she does this whole like fake sexual explanation to which Adam says, that's the girl I fell in love with, but only harbors platonic feelings for me. And then holds her foot and gives it a massage. And also we're not here for telling someone that you want to be friends and then having them constantly bring up that you don't reciprocate their feelings. That's not what a friend does. Nope, it is but not. Raiden is a little uncomfortable, but then the tension is broken when they hear people yelling and it turns out that the dad is with the cashier at the store, which just weird power dynamics all around these set of yes. Raiden moved into her parents' house, which is covered in garden gnomes for seemingly no addressed reason, but I love it. Her dad, who is a knockoff version of Michael Keaton, so I just call him Michael Keaton it is the Michael rest Keaton. of the time. What? It is? Yes! <laughs> Wait. I call Adam's dad knockoff J.K. Simmons. That's not J.K. Simmons, it right? Is. Wow, my joke, this whole thing is actually just a truth. <laughs> they like, no, it this doesn't cast quite is look like him. <laughs> just incredible cast for such like a mediocre movie. <laughs> Imagine someone referring to you as knockoff Lindsay Buttle. Her dad, who is Michael Keaton, <laughs> tries to fix her broken car despite never fixing a car before. And then when stepping in poop while trying to move Raiden's furniture back inside, he angrily runs to the neighbor's house, who happens to be hot, so Raiden is less mad about having to be home, presumably. And also was like, this is the third time I stepped in your cat's poop, which also like, wouldn't you be a little more careful where you step? Apparently not. Nope, it's his property. The cat shouldn't poop there. <laughs> There's then a montage of Raiden applying to jobs and Raiden hot her bike in full business clothes to these jobs, which, first off, LA is spread out. Like, presumably there's some scenes of her getting on the bus, but, like... yeah. Or, like, she takes you're riding, you're riding in your clothes. Like, go there and work out clothes, take a weird sink bath, and then change. But she has no idea what she's doing at any of these interviews. Like, one woman straight up was like, tell me one thing you like that our company does. And she wasn't able to answer because she didn't know what the company did. Yeah. <laughs> On her, like, table of job hunting, like, the kitchen table that she takes over, one of the flyers is, it literally reads like a casting call, but it's just, like, women 18 to 25 only. And I was like, what jobs is she applying for? Like, where did they get that flyer? <laughs> this was just written by a casting director. <laughs> There's an entire side plot of the brother wanting to enter a boxcar race, which they use the casket for because Ryden break, breaks one and they have to buy it, which I kind of ignore this entire side plot. Coffin is this movie's like scuba diving. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Next scene, Michael Keaton suggests. <laughs> that instead of looking for a job, that Raiden should go into the belt buckle industry and that she should do it with him. It also cuts to scenes of Adam refusing to open his law school letter from Columbia, presumably because Raiden won't be in New York and he doesn't just want to do what his dad wants him to do. <laughs> his dad is also an off friend, J.K. Simmons. I can't believe it. Which is convenient. <laughs> just convenient because I always get J.K. Simmons and Michael Keaton confused with each other. <laughs> 
pleased with themselves. <laughs> but yeah, I also said that Buckles is this movie's plastic. In the next scene, Ryden and Adam go to a party, presumably like a month after graduation, yeah. if that, like maybe only a few weeks. But everyone has a job or is going to grad school like the next semester as if that's realistic. And then the valid Victorian gives her shit for being unemployed. Like legit a month after graduation yeah. in 2009 in that economy. <laughs> I mean, even in today's economy, like I didn't get an, a paying in industry job for like seven months after I graduated and I wasn't alone and no one was judging me. And like when I got that job, it wasn't like, oh my God, finally. It was like, oh wow, cool. Like you got a job. And it's not like she like majored in something that was an instant career yeah, like, it's like it wasn't like engineering is. or like something where like people approach you before you graduate. Yeah, or like one of the ones where you have to apply to super early. Yeah, like accounting and gross things like that. <laughs> it turns out that Adam doesn't want to go or he is unsure about going to law school because his band has a gig. And as a parallel scene to The Graduate, into which Mrs. Robinson is like, Ben, I need to tell you this thing, but you have to come over really close for me to be able to tell it to you. He makes Ryden go creepily close to him on the diving board because it's quote unquote quote, a secret, and then shouts that his band got a gig. <laughs> I would have pushed Adam in. <laughs> Same. But he tells Raiden that she's lucky because she knows what she wants to do. Dude, you're also 22. You don't need to do that unless what you want to do is to quit your job and fly across the country for some dude who isn't even your real friend, in which case that is the wrong decision of knowing <laughs> what you want to do. Also, Ben's decision was the wrong decision of doing something regardless of not knowing what you want to do. Anyway, all of these movies are, you don't need to know what you want to do, you just cannot do these two things. You don't need to know what you want to do, but don't do that. <laughs> Next scene, Michael Keaton supposedly gets into a pyramid belt buckle scheme and tells Ryden that she can do the marketing. Upon being told that she, quote, isn't trying hard enough, after like a month, a week, we don't know, her dad makes her work at the luggage company, which also, fuck him, she's been going to so many interviews yeah. like it'd be one thing if she was sitting in a pool and being gone from midnight <laughs> to noon every day like quote unquote driving <laughs> yeah then you can be like you're not trying but she's going on interviews she's actively trying to do things <laughs> He tries showing her how to sell the luggage and tells her not to be too slutty while showing it off, but you need to be a little slutty so you can sell, which, okay, dad. Her nemesis then walks in saying that her new publishing job is already sending her to New York for a conference, which after a week, a month, your lowest ranking employee would not happen, but okay, regardless, Ryden quits in frustration. In the next scene, the dad, quote unquote, fixes the bumper or the engine or whatever was even wrong with the car, but instead makes it reverse at great speeds and not be able to stop and makes the door fall off, consequentially killing the hot neighbor's cat and then blaming Ryden for not warning him. But the dad goes to tell the neighbor, but as he's going, he gets mad because instead of stepping in the cat's poop, steps in the squished cat, which was a detail none of us needed. Nope. But to you tell the neighbor, Michael Keaton just opens the door, says, cat's dead, and that's it. Then either, I don't know if this was the neighbor's idea or a joke that Michael Keaton was playing, but they play memory from cats as they bury the cat's body in the neighbor's backyard. <laughs> Ryden then apologizes for the cat 
And Hot Neighbor is like, no need, actually let's eat pancakes, and invites Raiden into his entirely gray apartment covered in a bunch of shit from infomercials that he got for free as the director of infomercials. And his couch is a plastic inflatable see-through couch, and Raiden laughs and smiles as if she's impressed. It's 2009. <laughs> It was a simpler time. <laughs> Seemingly completely unfazed that his cat just died. He and Raiden drink wine, and then he stares at her like a murderer, like Twilight, <laughs> and offers Raiden a PA gig on set and tells her that now that she doesn't have a job to worry about, she should focus on the positives. Like, the fact that she doesn't have, quote, tragic ears, end quote, and they make out. Yep, immediately um, after hiring her, he makes out with her problematic. These movies are all about problematic relationships. They're the tips and tricks of what not to do when you're unsure about things and what relationships are not okay. Yes. The family comes back with cookies and then they state that they hear Raiden in the, like moaning in the living room and they're like, Raiden must be here, which A, why do you know her moans? B, why are you like, okay, we must go in? Well, I think they say Raiden <laughs> must be there before they hear the moan. Like, oh, I thought they like heard noise. No, I think the grandma's like, I think they're like, oh, where's Raiden? And then they're like, oh, she's probably paying her respects. And then they hear moans. And then Michael Keaton like runs in. Here's his daughter fraternizing with a man. 12 years older. Michael Keaton then confronts Raiden and is like, did you use protection? And she was like, dad, we were like fully clothed and obviously not having sex in that moment, at least. To which he in Pig Latin says to stay away from the hot neighbors, quote, doodle, end quote. Also turns out that Michael Keaton's belt were stolen from a professional belt guy, apparently, which is better than the multi-level marketing scheme that I thought it was. <laughs> Next scene, Raiden is shopping and makes Adam hold all of her clothes. And then he sings to her outside of the dressing room about how he once tried to kiss her and Raiden was like, please stop. And like, in theory, he's doing this to impress the cashier. Maybe, we don't know. But Adam, like, do you cure yourself? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, it is perfectly fine to be like, oh, I liked you at one point. I tried to pursue it. You said no. Now we're just friends. That's cool. But like, to hold onto those feelings and be like, maybe one day she'll realize that's fucked. Like, no, like you can't do that. Like, that's not being her friend. That's being creepy. And like to continuously hit on her and see that she's uncomfortable. Stop that, sir. He then proceeds to say that they should celebrate him getting his gig by very obviously asking Raiden on a date, but trying to disguise it as like not a date, yeah. which all of the evidence points above. Please stop asking her out. Yep. Next scene, Raiden is on... I don't know if the neighbor was ever named, so I just called him Hot Neighbor the entire time. Yeah, I don't know his name. <laughs> Let's see what IMDb says. Hang on. His name is David Santiago. Okay. I could call him David. No, please uh, don't. Next scene... <laughs> Next scene, Raiden is on Hot Neighbor's set for infomercials. And the infomercial is critiqued as needing, quote, more interesting shots, like in the style of The Matrix, feel like they could have said in The Graduate. That would have been on the nose. <laughs> but like you in know, the style of The no, Matrix. Like, this isn't like a remake of The Graduate, right? Like this has nothing to do with The is. Graduate. <laughs> It is. Okay. <laughs> Too many things are the same. Why would you make her be interested in her older neighbor? The same. It's not the same, but okay. 
<laughs> okay, also, if The Graduate is like the cinematography movie TM, as it is claimed to be, then that would have also just made sense logically as to what they would have Yeah, but there wasn't as... There wasn't special effects like that famous scene in The Matrix. That is also a held up scene for special effects and like dramatic elements. That's fair. Not needed for a disgusting machine where you well, put a, a whole avocado yeah, in. Yeah, that's kind of the point. He also, I mean, he also quit because of racism. So I am that's pro fair. quitting that's because fair. of racist <laughs> people. They told him that they need more interesting shots like in the style of The Matrix and that it needs to be, quote, more Mexican and then just says problematic things, which makes him quit on the spot and therefore also makes Ryden quit. He literally just grabs her arm and makes her leave. I know. <laughs> Meanwhile, Adam buys Ryden flowers at the store. And socks. And socks for her, quote, cold feet. Throwback to him touching them at the beginning of the movie. But Hot Neighbor and Ryden go to the beach and miss Adam's show where he sings a song about him not being able to tell Ryden how he's in love with her because it's, quote, hard for him to show his heart, though, like, very obviously is shown his heart the whole movie and we all know that he's in love with her and he has told her that multiple times. Yeah. Seemingly. It's, it's Maybe like, not in those exact words. He thinks <laughs> he hasn't shown his heart because she doesn't reciprocate. <laughs> Adam waits for Ryden at her house after she misses the show just to be like, it's not a big deal. And then acts very passive aggressive and leaves and then gets mad that he's in love with her and she doesn't reciprocate and like cares about finding a job, which granted Ryden is very self-centered, but also like finding a job is an important thing for her to do. Yeah. <laughs> at this time of her life. Much like Elaine finding out about Miss Robinson ruined their relationship, Adam finding about the next door neighbor ruined their relationship. Ha! Because <laughs> it's the same. It's the same. <laughs> Adam then says that he's not waiting anymore, which like, okay, cool, she told you not to hit on her, and then says that he doesn't want her in her future at all, because if he can't fuck her, then they can't continue to be friends. Which, like, should have been established at the beginning of their friendship when she said, I will never fuck you, and he said, okay. Immediately after, Michael Keaton gets arrested for quote-unquote stealing the belt buckles. Next conversation is of, this, is wait. this movie- <laughs> like, is this pro-cop propaganda? <laughs> I said that this is not pro-cop propaganda, because they arrest Michael Keaton for a crime that he didn't commit. They went after Michael Keaton, not the person actually, like, distributing the stolen goods and they held him first without bail then for 15k or he has to stay in jail until the trial which a good fuck you to the legal system and not an encouragement of it that's such a high bail yep <laughs> for just like have it like for having being stolen accused goods, yeah. Yeah. However, the grandma bails out Michael Keaton and then asks if she wanted a check or cash in that moment, which apparently she just had 15k on her. So yeah, insane. I guess not insane. I don't know. <laughs> in the next scene, the publishing company also apparently fired the other person for like two weeks, two months, don't know, regardless, offers Ryden the job. Adam has been ignoring her, so Ryden drives an ice cream truck to his pickup basketball game, and Adam again says, it's all good, and then is very passive aggressive, and says that he's decided that he's going to Columbia and is leaving the next day. To which I was like, is this the fall? Is he leaving early? Did summer happen? We don't know. Yep. Ryland offers him ice cream, to which he declines, and none 
none of the other people playing basketball, even though there's only four, which she can totally swing. Next scene, Raiden goes to her first day of work and they tell her that the old person, aka Raiden's nemesis, aka Jessica, was fired because she acted like she was, quote, running the company and also made herself the background of her computer that they presumably didn't reset before they gave it to Raiden. Yeah, I um, like, that makes me laugh so much because the idea of someone, like, going to my computer and having my background, my background on my work <laughs> computer is an out-of-context good place screenshot. It's the scene with Jason and but one of his, like, Florida friends being like, you got dreams in life? That's lit. <laughs> like... <laughs> the idea of a is new... Is it Pillboy? Is that his name? Yeah. But the idea of a new assistant getting that computer and being greeted <laughs> with, you got dreams in life? That's lit. Is really funny to me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Instead of seemingly training Raiden, her boss is like, you know you need to do X as part of your job, right? As if they explained anything to her and she didn't just walk in for her first day five minutes ago. But there's then a montage of her doing typical ass assistant stuff, like staying late reading submissions yeah, and doing say, her boss's bitch work. <laughs> I haven't watched this movie since becoming an assistant myself. And I was like, yeah, I've done every single one of these things except getting gum off of my boss's shoe. Like, I haven't done that, but everything Ugh. else, check. <laughs> <laughs> Next scene, Ryan comes home from work and sits on hot makeup couch in the pool because again it's a fucking inflatable couch but he says that he's moving to Brazil because quote work isn't everything and I haven't spoken to my family in I don't know how long and I realized that I needed some sort of human connection outside of my fucking job of directing infomercials which this is such an extreme like get a job and make friends yeah. you can do both you don't need to fly across the country for someone who wore you down until you finally decided to date them, but that's a spoiler for five minutes from now. <laughs> I mean, like, I guess your family is different, but in a matter of, like, Raiden hearing this advice and then being like, I can only be friends with Adam. Yep. I understand now. I understand. I don't care about my dream job. I need Adam. <laughs> Raiden takes the advice to mean, I can't find more people to love. I guess this is what I got, and tells her family that she's quitting her job and moving to New York, to which Michael Keaton is supportive, but also, like, you have a, like, good job at a notable publishing company. Like, just stay there a year to get, like, leverage and then move to a different publishing company in New York. Yep, which is a much also, smarter plan. you don't know if Adam forgives you. Yeah, also, like, where she's the graduate, you don't have money. she's going to <laughs> Adam's college, even though he has made no intention of wanting to ever speak to her again. Arguably, they didn't even go on that one date because she was with a hot neighbor. Yeah, that's fair. Regardless, she gets there and apparently just walks into Columbia's law school dorms and knows where Adam lives in the largest dorm in the world and is like, life sucks without you. I miss you, even though it has been... Again, an unknown amount of time since yeah, she has last seen him. But we had a montage, so we know at least some time has passed. Yeah. But, like, all of those things could have happened in a day in her job. I mean, they didn't because she was wearing different outfits, but... That's fair. But, like, a week, two weeks, a month, three months, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know that. But he he's filling out... I guess a maintenance request could happen at any time. Yeah. I assume that was, like, the opening thing that, like you give your RA the paper of, like, these are the things that's wrong with my dorm. Don't charge me. But I think it was, like, a something broke in my room. Please come look at it. 
Yeah. But Raiden's like, oh, I realize I'm in love with you, which seems fake, but whatever. <laughs> uh, and then realizes that there's a woman in the room. And then she's like, oh, I should have called. To which Adam was like, she's my RA. But also, like, what if she weren't his RA? Like, where were you gonna stay, Raiden? Like, what? <laughs> what was the backup plan? You already quit your job. But they kiss. I don't know why. I don't think many things changed with Raiden. Maybe she's worn out and settling. Who's to say? But the whole family tells her that they hope that she's having protected sex over the phone, and then they announce that they're coming to visit. And, end movie. <laughs> and much like The Graduate, it ends on a note of uncertainty, because Adam's like, wait, the whole family? <laughs> and suddenly he's regretting Stares it. off into the distance. <laughs> I now have what I want, and now I don't want it. <laughs> Linz. Yeah. Which did you like more, The Graduate or Postgrad? I feel like I like Postgrad more just because The Graduate offended me on, like, a lot of <laughs> levels. And, like, sure, it was prettier, but, like, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't feel good about myself if I were, like, like, if I were, like, I'm gonna sit down and watch this, it's not because I'm, like, okay, you know? Yeah. See, like, that's the thing is, I don't think I could bring myself to rewatch postgrad. Like, it, because that made me more angry. <laughs> like, the graduate made me uncomfortable, postgrad made me angry. But, like, I'm fine. Like, not that I necessarily watch things to, like, feel happy or to, like, not be uncomfortable. Like, I love things with, like, bittersweet endings or, like, secondhand uncomfortableness, but it's, like, uncomfortable in a way that, like, they thought it was yeah, it's, fine. It was an unintended uncomfortableness. Yeah. It wasn't like the filmmakers being like, Which like, hey. I don't want to actively put myself through. Yeah. And like, I, I thought postgrad was whatever, but like, I had fun <laughs> watching J.K. Simmons and Michael Keaton doing stuff. <laughs> Even some though weird you had stuff. no idea that it was J.K. Simmons <laughs> and Michael Keaton. <laughs> In retrospect, uh, fun time, belts. Belts. I I was entertained enough, and I didn't hate myself. Yeah, again, like I like the graduate for everything but the plot. <laughs> if you ignore the plot, it's a good movie. I can't. I can't ignore the I know, plot. So much of the movie is the plot. It's a shame how that works. You know, <laughs> just give me a plot. No, don't give me a plotless movie. I hate. I was gonna say, are we really saying that? Like those art house short films that make no sense and just feel like my eyes are bleeding out of my head. No, I don't want that. I feel like I'd rather that. <laughs> I'd rather no plot and like cry blood <laughs> than, than watch the graduate again. <laughs> okay then. <laughs> That's a very <laughs> firm stance. Well, that is the graduate and postgrad. Thank you for listening. Yeah, share mm. this episode with... <laughs> who should I share it with this week? I mean, their neighbor they find weirdly attractive, but probably shouldn't. Yeah, and then your neighbor's children, who you also find attractive. Also, follow <laughs> us on social media. We are at Film Squids Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or... Visit us at our website at filmkidsgiantsquids.com. Film Kids Giant Squids is produced and hosted by Brooke Hoppy and Lindsay Buttle. Theme music by the band Poly Action. Transition music is by Kong R45G Pen. Editing by Brooke Hoppy. Until next time, kids.